Deep in the Pacific Ocean, 350 miles off the coast of Central America, sits a small, unimposing island, surrounded in natural beauty. One of the island's lesser-known claims to fame is that its tropical climate and lost-world appearance were the original inspiration for Jurassic Park's fictional Isla Nublar. Better known, however, are the myths and legends that pertain to the hordes of pirate treasure buried beneath the surface and lost for over two centuries. Hundreds, if not thousands, of expeditions have sailed to its isolated shores in the hope of uncovering the untold riches, with little to show for their efforts but the wild stories that have helped to continue the legend of the lost treasure of Lima for over 200 years. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories. I'm Ben, your host as usual. It's wonderful to be back. The weather's fantastic. It feels like it's summer nearly. Everything's brilliant. I don't think I've got much to bust into before we start the episode, apart from the usual stuff, you know, thanks for listening. If you'd like to review, that's great. If you'd like to support, that's fantastic. All the links for that guff are in the uh, show notes down there. Quick callback to the last episode and uh, just say thank you for everyone that came along to the live stream. I, th- I think it was a success. It felt fun to do for me and I, I, I hopefully it was enjoyable if you came along. If you didn't come along, you can catch up on the live stream. It was basically just an hour of chatting rubbish and, and doing a bit of drawing. So yeah, thank you very much, uh, say, to, for making that enjoyable. I, I, I'm not always the best host when it comes to live streams. I'm, I'm a bit nervous. I'm not really, it sort of sounds funny, you know, the fact that I make a podcast, but I'm not big on being the centre of attention or, or, you know, like the big host or, or even the little host. <laughs> I'm not really good at being a host. But so, you know, it was really nice to have the interaction uh, between me and you and you know, have a, have a nice chat and make it a little bit more casual and, and a bit easier. But yeah, I enjoyed it. I hope you did. Uh, we'll definitely be setting something up soon for another live stream. I'll, but I'll let you know about all those things in social media or in future episodes. Anyway, let's get on with it. This episode is Cocos Island and the Lost Treasure of Lima. Lying in the Pacific Ocean, just shy of 350 miles southwest from the Costa Rican mainland, sits the pristine volcanic World Heritage Site of Cocos Island. With a footprint of 5 miles long and 3 miles wide, and with the maximum height of its four main peaks topping out at 1,886 feet, its vibrant green surface, densely packed with tropical rainforest, climbs high out of the sea, dominating the otherwise isolated landscape. Sitting right in the path of the converging northeast and southeast trade winds that creates a relentless, overhanging cloud, the climate is one of dank, tropical heat that sees persistent rainfall for nine months of the year and no actual dry season. The only opening for a boat to land sits in the northeast of the island, with the rest of the coast almost entirely unapproachable due to rocks and steep cliffs. Despite its remote location, The island has a solid population of rats, cats and wild pigs introduced over the years by the various visitors, many of whom wrote of the island in poetic descriptions. The country on each bank is exuberantly beautiful, this undergrowth which condemns me to wander so painfully in a chaos of rocks and cascades is of extraordinary strong growth and of a richness of colour that fairly dazzles. Everywhere is a medley of sparkling verdure a riot of delicate lace-like fronds and branches. Largely uninhabited throughout the centuries since its discovery in the mid-16th century, the small island has nevertheless seen a colourful history. Thanks to its remote location, topography that made landing difficult and abundant sources of food and fresh water, it gained something of a reputation in myth and legend as a refuge for pirates operating in and around Central America during the 17th and 18th centuries. The reefs that line the shores around the island only worked to enhance the pirate theme as they played host to a vast medley of marine life, including sharks that cruised in the shallower waters in large numbers. Later, the island went on to become a respite for whalers for a significant period, before operating as a prison colony for two years in the late 19th century. Unsurprisingly, it is the period spent as a pirate refuge that has kept what would otherwise be an obscure little patch of forest-covered rock in the middle of the ocean, well and truly in the spotlight for over two centuries, spawning one of the greatest pirate legends of all time 
with tales of a lost treasure hoard, grandiose enough to stand alongside ancient cities of gold in the public imagination. Rear Admiral Bedford Pym was born in Devonshire in 1826. The son of a distinguished Royal Naval officer, he was always destined to take to the sea himself. Entering the Navy in the early 1840s, he spent the first six years of his seafaring career aboard the HMS Herald, sailing around the world on scientific expeditions, collecting objects of natural history, before embarking on a voyage to the Arctic aboard the HMS Plover. In 1869, now as an admiral with an extensive sailing career behind him, Pym published a book titled Dottings on the Roadside in Panama, Nicaragua and Mosquito, where, if we are to believe his timeline of events, he makes a mention of one of the earliest references to pirate treasure on Cocos Island that he had picked up while sailing through Panama in 1849. How many expeditions have there not been from Panama and elsewhere to the Cocos Island? for the purpose of recovering the treasure buried there by pirates. I remember very well the men who more than 20 years ago made the first expedition thither. The prime mover of it was an English carpenter whose ambition in life, as he often assured me when packing up my natural history specimens, was to become a fellow of the Royal Society, which was, in his mind, identical with life at court. And this ambition, he thought, might be gratified by spending a sufficiently large sum of money on science. Once, but only once, the object had been almost within his grasp. He had been kind to an old countryman of his, and when the latter was about to die, he confided to him that he had been a pirate, that a large treasure was buried on Cocos Island a few hundred miles from Panama, and that, on the map which he handed to him, the exact spot was indicated. The old man was about to give further particulars when the carpenter, intoxicated with joy at the prospect of his sudden good fortune, rushed into the open air capering around like a madman. When reason somewhat returned, he hastened back to the bedside, but the old pirate had gone to his account, and the details of his revelation were lost forever. Nevertheless, the carpenter had no difficulty in persuading a Scotch watchmaker, a physician of the same nationality, and a couple of natives to accompany him to the Cocos Island. They collected as many provisions as they could, put them on board a large flat-bottomed canoe, and started but they soon became aware that such a canoe could never make so long a sea voyage, and taking a leaf out of the book of the pirates whose ill-gotten gains they were about to search for, they put themselves alongside a schooner belonging to the new Grenadian government and so frightened the men in charge that they willingly exchanged the schooner for the canoe. After many hardships and a lengthened passage, resulting from violent tropical squalls, long calms and the almost total absence of nautical instruments, they reached the island and found it uninhabited and densely covered with vegetation. The map had been drawn on so small a scale that it indicated scarcely more than the side of the island on which the treasure was said to be buried. The members of the expedition, nothing daunted, resolutely set to work for several months, digging and blasting, but without finding a trace of even of anything. At last, their stock of provisions, eked out by eating shellfish and cabbage palm, became so low that it was deemed imperative to return. At this conjuncture of affairs, the carpenter had a dream, which for a few days gave a new direction to their efforts. His old friend appeared to him, candle in hand, and pointed out the exact spot where the treasure was buried. Though this was in altogether a different part of the island from that indicated on the map, several days were devoted to searching the new locality, but again, without result. Just when about to embark, an American whale ship hove into sight, and her captain took the whole of the adventurers prisoners on the charge of piracy. But the Scotch physician convinced the captain that, the seizure of the schooner apart, the charge could not be sustained. Both parties were soon agreed that it would be a capital thing to obtain possession of the treasure, and the captain, on condition that one half of all the riches should belong to him, sent his crew on shore to assist in recovering them. Jack fully entered into the spirit of the search, and prodigiously large pieces of ground was overhauled. But this new effort was as unsuccessful as the previous ones, and nothing was left for it but to turn their backs on the Cocos Island and leave its treasure to more fortunate hunters. Skeptical in its delivery, Pym calls the numerous stories of treasure gossip and likens them to stories of magicians, despite the fact that his ship, the Herald, was called on by the Foreign Office to look into the matter, 
though it was unable to do so as, as it had already departed north for the Arctic. It seems likely that these stories made their way north up the coast of America to San Francisco, where the Cocos Island Treasure Company was founded in 1854 after it had secured investment to the tune of $550,000 by selling 22,000 individual shares at $25 each. Each share guaranteed the owner a proportional fraction of any treasure uncovered, of which they estimated was worth anywhere between 3 and $15 million. The company, founded by several San Franciscan men, included an unnamed sea captain that had recently returned to America penniless after a previous expedition to Cocos Island had ended in failure and imprisonment and cited an exciting tale of adventure in its brochure in order to rope in investors. The following are the facts attending to the deposit of this treasure gathered from the testimony of those who have heretofore attempted its recovery and from those who were living witnesses and actual participants in its concealment. During the year 1816, the people of Mexico were in rebellion against the authority of old Spain and the whole country was in a state of commotion. It had been the habit of government to ship large amounts of treasure, the product of rich mines of Mexico, to Spain direct from Versa Cruz, but the great losses occasioned by the depredations of the buccaneers who swarmed about the Caribbean Sea induced the Spanish Viceroy to make the shipments of treasure from the western coast to Manila, whence it might be transported in safety to Spain. The Viceroy, alarmed at the bold front of the insurgents and apprehensive of their ultimate success, determined to secure as large a portion as possible of the government treasures under his control from the contingencies of war. To this end, he gathered together an immense amount, consisting of coin, both gold and silver, gold bars, jewels and costly articles, transported them to Acapulco and shipped them to a Spanish galleon to Manila. Previous to this, Buenos Aires had not revolted against the Spaniards, and certain inhabitants of that place, represented to have been Scotch merchants, fitted a number of privateers under the Buenos Aires flag to prey upon the richly freighted galleons of Spain, which were at that time bearing the treasures of her colonies to the mother country. One of the Buenos Aires privateers doubled Cape Horn for a cruise in the Pacific Ocean. On her arrival in the Pacific, her crew mutinied and the captain and officers were put on shore at Valparaiso. The vessel continued on her cruise and after taking several prizes, dissension arose among the ship's company and 16 of the number determined to cut adrift from the rest, which they accomplished by making off in a vessel of which they had made prize, taking off with them a considerable share of the prize money gained. These 16 men fell in with and captured the Spanish galleon which had left Acapulco with the treasury shipped by the Viceroy of Mexico before mentioned. After taking the prize, the mount in their possession was so vast, being few in number and fearful of falling in with their old companions or with some larger vessel that might take them captive, they determined to secret the greater portion and return at some future time for its recovery. Accordingly, they buried it on Cocos Island, with many precautions, as before stated. Not long afterwards, their vessel was lost, some of the crew captured by a man of war and the rest scattered to the four quarters of the globe. One of these survivors of the pirate crew, known only as Chaplin, wound up on English shores and, after many years, he appealed to the Admiralty to go back to Cocos and collect the treasure. His request was denied and so, instead, he turned to the private market, drumming up a number of investors, each willing to put £500 into the venture, allowing him to return to Central America in 1849. Here, they crossed paths with an American merchant named Mr Lewis, who heard their story and carried it north to San Francisco after selling the expedition his boat to allow them to sail to Cocos Island. Sadly, Chaplin's crew never made it and instead they wound up on the bottom of the ocean after dashing against a rock formation off the coast of Aguadulce. The survivors escaped ashore but Chaplin was taken ill shortly after and realising that he was on his deathbed, he described both the treasure and its whereabouts to his attending doctor and one other unnamed man. He said there was a large quantity of silver dollars in bags and bulk which they carried on shore and threw promiscuously into the hole which they had made. In addition to this, there were 500 square boxes, each containing 1,000 doubloons, which would alone make the enormous sum of $8 million. Besides these, there was a vast amount of gold bars, splendid swords, gold scabbards, watches, chronometers and costly ornaments. He particularly described one magnificent ornament 
being an arch of solid gold, about 18 inches in height, and studded with diamonds and other precious stones. He also mentioned that it took five trips of the launch to land the treasure, and that on the last trip, the launch was swamped in the surf and sank with her load in about three fathoms of water. The company's ship, the Julius Pringle, left San Francisco on the 23rd of August and headed south full of enthusiasm. Sadly, it was quite misplaced, as despite enlisting a double crew, specialist divers and every appliance that ingenuity could suggest or money procure for the successful prosecution of this great enterprise, the search ended in spectacular failure after the whole thing turned out to be a scam ran by a bunch of chancers that had hoped to unearth the treasure by utilising specialist manpower and impressive financial sport in order to bypass any actual factual knowledge as to where the treasure was supposedly buried whatsoever. For the investors, along with the crew, they found out all too late, only realising once in Central America that the information they had sailed under had been nothing more than rumours and port tavern gossip. Luckily for them, whilst in Costa Rica, the crew happened upon another man who said that he knew of a family further inland who had his own charts and papers of Cocos Island that included details of the treasure. They tracked him down and bargained with him, finally persuading him to go to Cocos Island with them in return for a share of the treasure. And so they set out once more with renewed enthusiasm. Once more it turned out to be misplaced, however, and the next time the expedition is mentioned in the press is shortly after the Julius Pringles return to San Francisco, carrying nothing more than a cargo of lumber. Interestingly, in response to the articles that flooded the newspapers in 1854 covering the company's expedition, a correspondent signing his name as simply GPW wrote into the Brooklyn Daily Eagle to express his own faith in the existence of the treasure, having been part of another expedition himself to the island in 1849. This had also ended in failure after their guide, a man named Tucker, who had a map of the treasure, lost the all-important paper shortly after arriving on Cocos Island. Despite carrying out extensive excavations and returning home empty-handed, GPW said that he had not the least doubt that the treasure existed somewhere on the island. Following the Cocos Island Treasure Company's initial failure, they continued to journey to the island for a further 14 years, but were never once successful in finding any treasure. Rumours of the treasure never truly went away, however, and although people continued to search for it almost continuously, it wasn't until the late 19th century, as adventure fiction boomed, culminating in Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, that things really took off in the public eye. In the latter half of the 19th century, Cocos Island hosted several different groups of people, for varying reasons and with varied success having been a destination for whalers in the Pacific Ocean for several decades before kerosene overtook whale fat as the primary fuel used for lighting, Costa Rica, who had formally annexed the island in 1869, attempted to establish a penal colony on Cocos, felling an area of the forest and establishing agricultural fields where they grew vegetables, tobacco and coffee. The experiment turned out to be short-lived, but the project wasn't entirely halted. Rather, it changed directions, closing down the penal colony and handing over the reins to a German man named August Kisler, who had a view to create a commune-style colony. August Kisler had been born in Remscheid, Germany, in 1857. Described as a venturesome youth, he took to sea in 1880, which is where he met a young Portuguese man named Manuel Cabral, who helped the two while away the long sea-bound hours by telling Kisler of his grandfather who had lived an exciting life operating as a pirate aboard a vessel named Le Renard. One of his grandfather's biggest victories was over a Spanish ship, where he and his crew captured the vessel and shipped off with a heavy hoard of gold bullion, which they stashed on a small island he called La Palma. Inspired by the story, Gisler opted to begin his life as an adventurer and a treasure hunter. He lived in Hawaii for a spell, where he kept a keen ear out for any hints of treasure until he met a man named Bartles, with whom he had spent time gambling with dice in the local tavern. Bartles also had a story for Gisler, this time concerning his father-in-law, Old Mac, who Bartles said had been searching for treasure in Cocos Island since the middle of the century. Although he'd never been successful, and he had eventually left the hunt after a run-in with an aggressive captain. Old Mac had, however, kept his charts and maps, and in a fantastic display of coincidence, 
it turned out that they corresponded precisely with Cabral's descriptions of La Palma. Convinced that the two islands were one and the same, Gisler set about jumping on the trail of the lost treasure. Enlisting the aid of 14 other men who had signed up to his treasure-hunting syndicate, he sailed to Cocos Island aboard the Wilhelmina in February of 1889. Gisler's expedition lasted for several weeks, until supplies ran out and the whole thing had to be called off without any success. They returned to Costa Rica and much of the syndicate went their separate ways, but some, including Gisler, stayed on in Central America and returned to Cocos Island several times to carry out more short-lived, unsuccessful expeditions. Over time, it became clear to Gisler that what he needed to do was spend more time on the island rather than all the silly toing and froing that he had been doing. And so, accordingly, he applied for permission from the Costa Rican government to establish a commune of 50 German families on the island that would allow him to hunt for the treasure to his heart's content. Arriving on the island as the members of the penal colony were disappearing over the horizon, Gisler took over establishing a habitable location on the island with the permission of the Costa Rican government under the banner of the Cocos Island Plantation Company, which he had formed in order to raise capital for his venture back in America. Selling the plantation with the promise of adventure and vast wealth, the first party of settlers on Cocos Island consisted of Gisler and his new wife, along with six other German families. Before any treasure hunt could get underway, a certain degree of sustainability had to be set up, and so the group went about clearing forest, building basic shelter, creating fields, and setting up pens to house the chickens, ducks and turkeys that they had bought with them. The Costa Ricans promised to send a steamer out to the island every six months with supplies, along with news from the mainland. However, this boat seemed to spend more time out of the water being repaired than it did in actual service, and as such... Kistler and his plantation found themselves feeling more or less marooned for much of the time. Within a year, things started to turn south, when another group of four families showed up on the island just as supplies had begun to dry up. When one of their number fell ill and died soon afterwards, the threads truly began to unwind, and people began leaving after they realised that with all the back-breaking work they had to undertake in a challenging climate just to exist on the island, they were left with little time to seek treasure and become rich. Gisler doubled down by signing a new deal with the Costa Rican government that would see him hand over a third of any treasure found in return for huge swathes of land on the island. He also accepted Costa Rican citizenship and took on the role of governor of Cocos Island, a position of authority that he embraced, utilising it to quell an uprising by some of the settlers when he shoved a pair of pistols in the face of the rebels and restored peace by, using his own words, scaring them into submission. Over the following years, the plantation scratched along, whilst Gisler oversaw the digging of a vast tunnel complex, which they dug out in their hunt for treasure, which, of course, remained elusive. Eventually, the colony dwindled, and by the end of the century, Gisler found himself alone with his wife and a single servant. Despite the obvious failures in almost every aspect, Gisler continued life on the island, and with some defiance, he actually built himself a reasonable life. He had a seafaring boat that he'd constructed out of the local trees. He'd cultivated coffee, limes, cocoa, sweet potatoes, oranges, bananas and pineapples and used plant fibres and saps to make a huge number of day-to-day necessities, including glue, ink and ropes. He repaired his own boots and he even rolled his own cigars. He domesticated some of the wild pigs from the island and for a while he kept goats that he had transported to the island but after they uprooted his crops, they ended up as part of the meat supply. In short, he had made himself as self-sufficient as possible, using nothing but the island's natural abundance and an incredible amount of his own ingenuity. He lived on the island until 1908, where he acted as something of a policeman for the Costa Rican government, watching over the treasure hunters that would attempt to ransack the island behind the government's backs, whilst continuing the hunt for treasure himself. Upon his return to America, his haul after 16 years of life on Cocos Island amounted to a grand total of 33 gold coins and one golden gauntlet. Right up until his death in 1935, he maintained a belief that there was treasure to be found on the island, with its discovery only limited by time and money. During his time on the island, Gisler had seen many a treasure hunter come and go, especially the British who, by the end of the 19th century were busy carving out a new legend for the island. 
Whilst Gisler was busy scratching around for funding for his exciting new colony, treasure hunters half the world away were themselves busy planning their own expeditions to Cocos Island in the hunt for a long-lost treasure. Whether or not it was the same treasure is open to some debate, and whilst there are many crossovers in all the Cocos Island legends, the legend that brewed in Britain towards the end of the 19th century did have some unique qualities that elevated the wealth of the treasure above all others in its grandiosity. Unsurprisingly, the source of the British legends of Cocos Island in the 19th century stemmed from the tale of an imperialist merchant. Captain William Thompson, a British trader, had been operating in Central America for some time before the armies of José de San Martín began marching through Argentina, Chile and Peru, liberating them from the Spanish conquistadors in the Spanish-American Wars of Independence that ignited conflict and saw battles rage across the continent. Central to the Peruvian struggle for independence was the capital city of Lima, which had been under Spanish rule for almost 300 years. Throughout the 16th century, the city had grown in prestige and grandeur as the Spanish Viceroyalty established palaces and cathedrals and cemented it at the centre of a sprawling trade network, linking Central America to Europe and East Asia, trading textiles, minerals and precious metals around the world. At one point in the 18th century, Peru supplied 60% of all the world's silver, and almost all of it had travelled through Lima at one point or another. At the head of it all, the Viceroyalty amassed a huge cachet of wealth in the form of gold, silver and gemstones. After negotiations broke down between San Martín's army and the Spanish Viceroy, José de la Serna, the liberating forces isolated the city of Lima, besieging the Peruvian capital in 1821 and forcing the Viceroy to flee along with his army, leading to the city's eventual return to independence. Here, the legend of the Cocos Island treasure begins, as it was told that Thompson, the British merchant, was employed by the Viceroy to evacuate the imperial treasure as the liberating forces approached, and Thompson was constructed to convey it back to Spain aboard his ship, the Merry Deer. The Viceroy chose his escorts poorly, however, and finding the cargo to be too strong of a pull, Thompson chose instead to stop off on Cocos Island and bury the treasure, which included silver and gold coins, gold bullion, and a seven-foot-tall, solid-gold statue of the Virgin Mary, adorned with emeralds and diamonds, with plans to sail back and uncover the treasure at a later date, possibly with the force of the British Navy behind him, the crew of the Mary Deer set sail back towards Europe. But soon, they found themselves arrested by a Peruvian warship. The entire crew was executed for piracy, with only Thompson and his first mate, Alexander Forbes, spared after the captain struck a deal to take his captors back to the island and show them where they had buried the treasure. Ever the pirate, Thompson instead took them on a wild goose chase through the Galapagos Islands before the pair made off when they were able to escape one night aboard a passing whaler. Thompson lived out the rest of his days in Newfoundland, which is where the story picks up once more, as he lay on his deathbed in the home of his friend, John Keating, a Newfoundland fisherman. Before he drew his final breath, he entrusted a series of charts to Keating and instructed him that they were the key to uncover the lost treasure of Lima that he had buried on Cocos Island 20 years prior. Follow the coastline of the bay till you find a creek, where, at high water mark, you go up the bed of a stream which flows inland. Now you step out 70 paces, west by south, and against the skyline you will see the gap in the hills. From any other point, the gap is invisible. Turn north and walk to a stream, you will now see a rock with a smooth face rising sheer like a cliff. At the height of a man's shoulder above the ground, you will see a hole large enough for you to insert your thumb. Thrust in an iron bar, twist it round in the cavity, and behind you will find a door which opens on the treasure. As Hollywood adventure as it all sounded, Keating apparently made three journeys to Cocos Island in the hunt for the treasure. For the first trip, he enlisted the help of a Captain Bogue, who had at some point planned to travel to Cocos Island with Thompson, though the expedition had just never happened. They chartered a brig named the Edgecombe, and the ship arrived on Cocos Island in the summer of 1841. Apparently, Keating and Bogue were able to find the fabled treasure cave, though the trip was fraught with trouble, and eventually resulted in Keating returning alone aboard a Spanish trading schooner with a handful of gold coins, stamped with the official mark of the Bank of Lima. The story went that the crew had mutinied upon hearing the discovery of the treasure cave and went after the loot themselves, though they had no idea of where it actually was and no chance to help them find it. 
Keating would later say that he returned home alone after Captain Bogue had fallen into the surf whilst they were escaping from the mutineering crew and had drowned due to the amount of gold that he had stuffed into his pockets. But there were some rumours suggesting that Keating and Bogue had had a fight in the treasure cave and Keating had left Bogue on the island to die after striking him round the head. Using the profits from the gold he had taken from Cocos Island previously, Keating built a 120-tonne ship and enlisted a crew under the guise of fishing for pearls, though upon their arrival, most figured out their true reason to dock on the famous island. Once again, mutiny raised its ugly head, and the crew, learning of Keating's true intentions, forced him ashore by gunpoint, intending to force him to lead him to the treasure. Keating escaped once more, and after four days of hiding from the crew in the heavy forest of the interior of the island, he was left stranded until he was rescued by a passing whaling vessel. Once more, Keating was able to secure a handful of gold coins, but was once more forced to leave the vast majority of treasure behind. Unfortunately, as rumours persisted of his discovery of the treasure and of the mysterious disappearance of Captain Bogue, Keating was forced to retire from Central America and return to Newfoundland empty-handed. Twenty years later, sometime around 1868, an old seaman named Nicholas Fitzgerald who, with his adventuring days behind him, had taken a post in the Newfoundland government with a connection to the national fisheries, was sailing to a village named Codroy, which had recently seen an influx of destitute shipwreck survivors who had wrecked off the coast and struggled ashore. Upon his arrival, Fitzgerald surveyed the poor conditions that the shipwrecked men had found themselves forced into, and he took it upon himself to distribute his ship's stores among the survivors and care for the sick. In one shed, he found a group of men sleeping on the ground with only an old sail to wrap around them for warmth. Ordering an elderly gent, whom Fitzgerald thought to be dying, to be carried to his own room, he nursed the old man slowly back to health. One night, when the old man's sickness was at its worst, he turned to Fitzgerald and asked him if he knew who he was. As it turned out, the old man had been Keating, or Keating of the Cocos Island Treasure, as he liked to call himself. Thankful to Fitzgerald for caring for him, Keating slowly divulged over a series of evenings all of the secrets of the Cocos Island treasure and his long history of expeditions to recover the hoard. At the end of his story, he and Fitzgerald drew up an agreement promising to travel to the island together to recover the treasure once and for all. As Keating's health returned, however, Fitzgerald began to have fresh doubts. Unwilling to end up the way of Captain Bogue, Fitzgerald withdrew from the old sailor. But due to the agreement he had signed with him, that forbade him to speak of the treasure if they did not return together, he kept the details to himself for almost 20 years, until the death of Keating in 1882, when he finally took it upon himself to contact members of the British Navy with the hope to put together an expedition of some kind to retrieve the treasure. Admiral Henry Palliser, the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Station of the Royal Navy during the late 19th century, had, in his long career off the shores of the Central American Pacific, heard similar legends of the Cocos Island treasure. He had, in fact, gone after it once before on something of a whim after his crew had begged him to let them ashore and have a go at finding it for themselves. The Admiral acquiesced and the crew went on to spend two days blowing huge holes in the island cliffs with dynamite as they turned a heavy hand to the treasure hunt, though it ended in failure all the same. This little escapade earned the Admiral a sharp rebuke and Cocos Island was signed off limits for all in the British Navy. The events had been written up in several British and American newspapers, including the Edinburgh Evening News, who reported with some sensation that the Blast Happy Expedition had actually been successful, though a second story later on corrected the outcome. Fitzgerald, who had seen the stories in the papers himself, eventually decided to confide in Admiral Palliser, and after some time and much correspondence, he entrusted him with charts, maps and the full story of the Cocos Island treasure in the hopes that he could help him find it, cutting him in on a 5% share of the profits. Key to Fitzgerald's story was that Keating had told him that everyone so far had failed to find any treasure on Cocos Island because they had all assumed that it had been buried in Wafer Bay, when the truth was that whilst Thompson had indeed docked there, as it was, after all, the only bay on the island that could accommodate a large ship, he had then gone on to ferry the treasure around the bay via the main ship's rowboat to a creek on the northwest of the island and unloaded the cargo on the beach there. Fitzgerald also gave the Admiral detailed descriptions of the treasure cave and its entrance as given to him by Keating. 
The cave, if found without the door being damaged or blown up, will surprise all who see it, on account of the ingenious contrivance and workmanship, possibly done by Peruvian workers in stone, whose skill was noted. In Keating's words, the cave is between 12 and 15 square, with sufficient standing room. The entrance to it is closed by a stone made to move round in such a peculiar manner that it sets into the rock when you turn it, leaving a passage through which one can crawl into the cave at a time, and when the stone is turned back in its place, the human eye cannot detect it. It fits like a paper on a wall. You have to find a hole into which a man's thumb can fit, and when you find the mark, insert into it an iron bar. One man can easily turn it. In that cave are gold and silver, and images enough to load a vessel. Palliser spent several years looking into Fitzgerald's story, cross-referencing it with other stories from men who claimed to have information of the lost treasure cave, and, after his term in command of the Pacific Fleet was complete, he put together a small boat, captained by an English sailor, and instructed them to make a reconnaissance mission out to Cocos Island and look for the cave, specifically instructing the captain not to touch the treasure if he was to find it. Unfortunately, after all the prep work, the captain fell ill and the crew grew mutinous, leaving the hull to wind up as a complete failure. It took until 1902 for a second expedition to be planned out, after a subscription had been set up in order to finance the entire affair. A syndicate of investors was put together and a steamship named the Lytton chartered, which the group subsidised by first carting a cargo of cement to Selina Cruz, where the construction of a harbour was underway as part of a terminus on the newly built Trans-Mexican Railway. With the cargo unloaded, the ship would be lent to the syndicate for a month to collect the full crew who met up in Mexico City and then headed down the coast to Cocos Island. The Costa Rican government granted the group a concession in the spring of 1903, offering them exclusive treasure hunting permission for a full year in return for one half of the profits should any treasure be discovered. The task of putting together the expedition was made all the more difficult on account of the fact that the syndicate was aiming to complete the expedition in complete secrecy from the press, and so procuring all the necessary tools, supplies and manpower took considerably longer than they had hoped. Eventually, the treasure hunters sailed from Antwerp on May 9th, 1903, bound for Cocos Island and the lost treasure of Lima. Bad weather delayed the arrival of the Lytton in Central America, and so the members of the syndicate made the most of their time touring Mexico as they slowly made their way towards Selena Cruz. They finally departed from Selena Cruz to Cocos Island on the 4th of August, and three days into the voyage, Admiral Palliser laid bare the entirety of the clues that he had amassed to the syndicate and its crew for the first time. Until that point, he'd kept the details a strict secret. With some excitement, everyone looked over the map of Cocos Island, complete with three separate lines drawn from three separate sources, including Fitzgerald's letters, that converged upon a single point, marking their best guess as to the location of the treasure cave. The Lytton approached Cocos Island at 5am on Sunday the 9th of August. The crew had already decided to anchor as close to the small cove which Keating had said housed the treasure cave as they could, especially as they believed that another treasure hunting party was operating on the island ahead of them who were already shored up in Wafer Bay, and they hoped that they could prevent them from becoming aware of their presence on the island. By 8am, they were clambering ashore, dragging their landing boat up on the sand onto the deserted beach with all the enthusiasm that they could muster though it quickly began to dissipate once the reality of the island began to sink in. Off we started, spread out like a pack of hounds and cutting and hacking with our billhooks to clear a passage through the thick undergrowth, as tough and impenetrable as a wire entanglement. The only way to force a passage inland is to follow the course of some stream, wading through shallows and clambering from one slippery boulder to another wherever the water flows through deep pools. It appeared from the story on which the whole of our expedition was founded that, once on the right track, we should not have much difficulty in putting our hands upon the treasure, for Keating had found his way to the spot on a pitch-dark night. It could not be far from the seashore, as the rough nature of the ground and the thick vegetation must have prevented the carriage of a heavy weight for any considerable distance. A brook, flowing from the hills, had worn out a valley down to the sea, and the mouth of the creek, formed by the outlet of this stream of fresh water, was our first starting point. Climbing along the bed of this little river, we searched inland, but nowhere could we see the slightest indications 
of the expected gorge or rocky formation. Nor, judging by the nature of the features of the ground, did it appear possible that such could exist. Indeed, one might as well expect to find a field of barley in the midst of Piccadilly. The group took the disappointment that finding the treasure was not going to be the simple affair that they thought it should have been, and they pushed on through the difficult terrain, working further into the interior of the island, until finally they conceded that they had ventured far beyond the given directions from Keating, and they turned back to the shore disappointed. Returning for the second day, somewhat discouraged but keen to crack on with the expedition, they ventured once more onto the island, first having sailed around Chatham Bay to document all the possible landing positions. In the afternoon, after trekking through the difficult terrain, clearing the undergrowth in order to move forward, they came across a tall stone that matched Fitzgerald's description. We discovered a reef of rock some 30 yards in length, protruding for a height of five or six feet from the ground. We examined the place carefully, hacked away the vegetation and broke with our picks the whole face of the stone. After checking our measurements and bearings for a second time, we came to the conclusion that we had found the place indicated by Fitzgerald's clue, though the immense amount of soil swept down the valley by the stream had evidently altered the appearance of the ground. This initial excitement faded quickly, however, once the crew made further calculations and realised that they were off from their clues by some margin. The next day, Admiral Palliser declared the whole hunt to be hopeless due to the deterioration of the ground caused by the flowing streams that had carved their way from the peaks down to the sea over the years. The crew managed to talk him round after they suggested that the old pirates' measuring devices may have calculated distances differently to their own, leading them to think that they were further from the prize than they actually were. And with a renewed excitement upon that realisation, the crew went to sleep, looking forward to an early start for another full day of treasure hunting. Taking new measurements, they calculated that the rock they had found was close enough to Fitzgerald's clue, provided that they fudged the numbers a little, and they somewhat desperately began digging around the rock hoping to find the treasure cave's entrance. Hours turned to days, until it became impossible to conclude anything but the fact that they were digging in the wrong place. No results had been found at all, and so, dejected and realising that their time with the lithium was almost half expired, they gave up on the disappointing rock face. Two days later, Admiral Palliser and the crew of the lithium had pulled up their anchor and cast away from Chatham Bay, empty-handed and dejected. Before leaving Cocos Island and heading back to Panama, they stopped in on Wafer Bay and met with the German, August Gisler, who they stayed with for three days, and then taxied he, his wife and their servant back to the mainland with them. Despite its best efforts, the Palliser Syndicate, like everyone before them, had failed in their hunt for the lost treasure of Lima. Despite the many failures, racked up by the many dozens of expeditions to Cocos Island that had taken place in the 19th century, the 20th century saw no slowdown of adventurers and treasure seekers heading to the Pacific in search of lost gold. Within a year of Admiral Palliser's return, he had teamed up alongside the 7th Earl, William Wentworth Fitzwilliam, to make his way back out to the Pacific. Wentworth Fitzwilliam, the British nobleman and politician, had finished his political career two years earlier after inheriting his title from his grandfather, along with an estate that sat him comfortably amongst the richest men in the country and at the head of a coal mining empire that employed almost 2,000 people. The Wentworth Fitzwilliam family had had a long history of industrialism and William was no different. He studied the industrial engineering behind the mining operation and consequently supplied all the miners and engineers that he thought a treasure hunting party might need. The expedition was put together under the greatest secrecy. The Earl, keen to keep his real intentions out of the press, had parroted a story of seeking coal and mineral deposits to anybody that asked, though the inclusion of Palliser on the trip allowed people to make their own conclusions. As the ship sailed out of Southampton in October of 1904, there was the familiar buzz amongst the crew, which included a cow for fresh milk, a cat and a one-eyed dog. One of the expedition's supposed trump cards was their possession of a treasure map, supplied by Palliser, scrawled out on a cured piece of animal skin, which, presumably, aided everyone's belief in its authenticity. It was, according to David Smith, one of the crew members who later went on to publish an account of the expedition, one of the best-equipped expeditions since the days of Francis Drake. Upon their arrival to Cocos Island, they quickly came to the conclusion that time had sought to further bury the treasure deep below its original hiding place, as earthquakes and landslides had altered the ground beneath their feet, 
And so, like any good collection of engineers and miners, they turned to the possibility of blasting their way to the gold. Unfortunately, this grand plan to turn an industrial hand to the treasure hunt failed miserably after the engineers miscalculated in setting the fuses and blew themselves up, along with most of the crew. The expedition returned to England after just five days on Cocos Island, with its tail firmly between its legs, especially after the leaders were summoned to Buckingham Palace to be reprimanded by the king for causing a certain amount of diplomatic trouble. Amazingly, after so many failed expeditions, it was only the First World War that could put a stop to the treasure hunts on Cocos Island, and even then, the outbreak of war proved to only be a temporary inconvenience, and the years between the wars actually managed to see a rise in expeditions as a whole new generation of hunters took to the Pacific with gold in their dreams. Following the First World War, expeditions everywhere took off in a whole new way. Times had changed, and so had technology, and by the 1920s and 30s, it had become easier and cheaper than ever to jump aboard a ship and sail halfway around the world. In the 19th century, expeditions had been undertaken and financed mainly by the wealthy, but a new era of treasure hunting was on the horizon that saw people of all classes hop aboard and chase their treasure hunting dreams. The 1920s saw expeditions carried out by all sorts of people. There were still many rich, including Sir Malcolm Campbell, a racing specialist with a penchant for breaking land speed records, and Lee Guinness, of Irish brewing fame and the inventor of the spark plug. But now there were also people like James Plumpton, who purchased a tired old trawler for £250 in 1932 and set off towards Cocos Island. His journey took him through the newly opened shortcut of the Panama Canal, significantly reducing the travel time for a well-equipped modern ship, of which Plumpton's vigilant was neither, and as such, the journey still took him an impressively poor time of four months. What Plumpton lacked in modern technology and raw finance, however, he made up for with his secret weapon, a member of the crew named Frank Cooper, who came with the ability to divine the location of precious metal via a spring taken from an old gramophone. Thankfully for Plumpton, upon his arrival he met a group of Canadians who had arrived there just before him, also in search of treasure, and they were far better equipped. The Canadians one-upped even Frank Cooper and his magic spring when they unveiled their own ace a newfangled device that they called a metallophone. The metallophone was a mass of electrical coils wound with fine wire that would have a current passed through it, whereby it would allegedly sound a tone should the user pass it over a spot on the ground that concealed metal down to 25 feet. The coils weighed around 50 kilograms and needed four men to operate, making the whole affair entirely cumbersome, especially so given that the coils needed to be bone dry to operate, and neither the climate nor the sea were especially suited for such cooperation. Unsurprisingly, their expedition ended in nothing but frustration, as the Cocos Island treasure succeeded in evading yet another expedition. Amazingly, Plumpton and Cooper made the journey to Cocos Island for a second time, but they found themselves shipwrecked off the coast of South America just north of Brazil before they had even made it to the Pacific. In 1934, Treasure Recovery Limited was floated on the stock exchange with the hope of funding several expeditions around the globe in search of various treasures, including the lost treasure of Lima on Cocos Island. Treasure Recovery Limited appealed to the future of treasure hunting by advertising the use of a special patented contraption using geoelectric and electromagnetic methods in order to draw an investment in their shares, which they at the least had the integrity to advertise as speculative. What they made up for in scientific preparation, they lacked severely in diplomatic relations, and instead of applying for a concession to search for treasure from the Costa Rican government, they planted a Union Jack flag in the ground and simply claimed the island for the British crown. The group achieved little else after the chief engineer fell on the famous slippery rocks around the island and cracked open his skull, forcing him to be hospitalised in Panama and the expedition to be abandoned. Unfortunately for Treasure Recovery Limited, the incident also alerted the Costa Rican authorities to the treasure hunters' presence on Cocos Island and they promptly sent a boat of soldiers to arrest the interlopers. The abandoned crew appealed to the British Crown to intervene but were promptly ignored by a government that wanted no part in the mess that the company had created for themselves. 
Amazingly, a second expedition by Treasure Recovery Limited was fully funded in 1935, and the company set out once more, this time with the new information of a tale told to them by a Belgian man named Petrus Bergmans, who claimed to have been on the island previously and said he had found the treasure. If this source feels somewhat dubious, then it probably won't help to know that they had interviewed Bergmans during his time in jail in Antwerp. Despite these obvious red flags, Bergmans was recruited and the company sailed for Cocos Island once more. Upon their arrival, they found four American castaways on the beach, who, despite having no boat due to falling foul of a shipwreck, did have a collection of digging tools and a healthy stock of guns and ammunition. The shipwrecked Americans joined the party, who now turned to Bergmans to take them to the treasure. To the surprise of absolutely nobody except Treasure Recovery Limited, Bergmans quickly turned out to be a fraud. This time, the company did not survive. Upon their return to England, many of the original investors took the treasure hunters to court and successfully enacted a petition to shut them down. Once more, war put an end to the madness, and a second temporary halt to the Cocos Island expeditions came about with the outbreak of World War II. Once more, as peace settled around the globe, the expeditions picked back up, and even saw another golden age as more and more people flocked to the island in search of treasure, all of which were utterly unsuccessful. With so many failed ventures, one eventually has to question the truth of all the myths, legends and rumours that had sprung up around the treasure of Cocos Island. By the mid-20th century, many of the stories had become so intertwined that most were little more than a corrupted amalgamation of several century-old tales originally told amongst sailors in the bars and taverns in ports across Central America. But still, people flocked to the island, convinced that they would be the ones to uncover the gold. But was there really any truth at all to any of the myths associated with the island? It's certainly true that Lima was a relatively wealthy city, the capital of Spanish imperialist trade in Central America, and the Viceroyalty era was certainly the city's economic golden time, and the Viceroy, José de la Serna, absolutely existed, and his hasty retreat from the besieged city had taken place. There is some evidence to suggest that he did organise shipments of both the state and private citizens' money and gold away from the city aboard neutral ships. And whilst there's much speculation of what exactly the hordes of treasure removed from the city actually consisted of, there is no mention at all of anyone named Thompson, nor of his ship the Merry Deer, being involved in anything but the oral legends of the mid-19th century. Supporters of the legends might suggest that no official mention of any stolen treasure exists due to the fact that the Spanish would try to avoid any embarrassment, or that the details of a viceroy enlisting the help of what amounted to a pirate ship would have been omitted from any official records. In 1929, several documents pertaining to have been created by Thompson himself were said to have been uncovered, including an inventory of treasure that he supposedly carted off to Cocos Island, describing a solid gold statue of the Virgin Mary that stood two metres tall, encrusted with over 1,600 gemstones, including three four-inch emeralds on its chest. Unfortunately, at least one of these documents is a guaranteed forgery, owing to the fact that it's dated 1820, a whole year before Lima had even been sacked. But if the treasure didn't even exist in the first place, then how was it that so many had fallen foul to the promise of its hidden riches? In 1935, Bertrand Chambers, a Royal Naval officer, published an article in the magazine Chambers' Journal addressing that very question, concluding that the myth of treasure on Cocos Island had been propagated by a long string of conmen looking to hoodwink investors by manipulating people's desires to believe in the romantic. The fever of treasure hunting that had swept both through North America and Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries, heightened by colonialism, the popularity of adventure novels and the promise of a quick windfall were incredibly strong pulls, especially to men who felt that they were suppressing an undeniable sense of adventure. In his book on his own expedition, one of the crew aboard Pallas's ship named Montmorency wrote that the treasure searcher should be a man who can be a boy again when he reads Robert Louis Stevenson, which goes a long way to explaining the mindset that a con man might have looked for when rolling out a pitch to a room of wealthy would-be investors. How many of the expeditions had money pumped into them, either due to direct fraud or because they were based upon a legend that had corrupted over time as stories were embellished, mixed up and passed along. 
As an experiment, Chambers himself invested £5 into Cocos Island Treasure Limited, hoping to at least gain the report of the expedition. I was, however, disappointed even in my modest hopes, for beyond the suggestion that the treasure was on the point of recovery in the early days, I heard nothing, and no report came to hand of how our money was expended. In truth, scepticism surrounded the tales of Cocos Island almost as early as the myth's inception. In a newspaper report concerning an expedition to the island in 1854, the editor wrote with a scathing tone. There are hundreds of such stories circulating always in South America, and were they true, there is more gold and silver coin in deposit underground than has ever been raised above it. We suppose there is scarcely a year that some treasure hunter does not do a little digging in search of Captain Kidd's treasure, which is said to be buried somewhere down east. Locus in quo, not being exactly known, but a good many know pretty nearly where it is. So, was there ever a Cocos Island treasure? Did somebody already make off with the loot, silently securing it away under the cover of darkness and far away from a media eye? Or does it still lay underneath the ground of the small island, undiscovered for over 200 years? Montmorency, who travelled to the island aboard two expeditions, came to a relatively sceptical conclusion himself when he said simply that, There is something correct in all of the clues, but there is always something missing. So that was the story of the lost treasure of Lima and the many legends and myths that surround Cocos Island. We'll talk a little bit about it after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. It makes cooking fun and easy with pre-portioned ingredients, seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. If you're like me and you love cooking, but you don't really like the peripheries around cooking, like, for example, shopping and preparing meal plans, you know, things like that, uh, HelloFresh is absolutely perfect. Especially now with the weather getting a bit warmer, figuring out what you're going to eat for dinner is probably not at the top of most people's summer activity uh, wish list. HelloFresh delivers mouth-watering, chef-crafted recipes and fresh ingredients to your door so you can spend your summer doing whatever you want rather than preparing what you're going to eat for dinner for the next seven days. I really like that HelloFresh can get you out of like being stuck in ruts. Uh, I'm incredible at that. Lived by myself for the last 20 odd years and I'm basically cooked the same meals over and over again. HelloFresh can get you out of that rut. They offer up to 40 different recipes to choose from weekly uh, with options to please pretty much every sort of picky eater. So, you know, the idea is that you'll always be able to find a meal that everyone can enjoy. Personally, I love it. As I say, for me, I I love cooking, always have really enjoyed cooking. Not great at it, but I just I like I like doing it anyway. But I don't really like, say, all the all the prep work around it. HelloFresh just solves all of that. So if you think that might interest you, go to HelloFresh.com slash DarkHistories16 and use code DarkHistories16, that's DarkHistories16, for 16 free meals plus free shipping, which is not a bad way to check out HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I have a podcast to introduce you today. I say introduce, I've actually introduced it before, but this is season two of The Art of Crime, The Art of Crime is a history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. Season two is titled Assassins. It profiles artists who have committed, attempted, or at least been implicated in an assassination. Over the course of 15 episodes, you'll hear about creators who worked in a variety of artistic media throughout history and around the globe. The most infamous one is actor John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. Apart from Booth, you'll hear about the aspiring playwright who walked into Andy Warhol's studio bent on shooting him dead in 1968, the Roman emperor, an actor-musician who ordered the murder of his own mother in 59 AD, and the German painter accused of taking part in a daring attempt on Hitler's life in 1939. If you listen to Assassins and like what you hear, make sure to check out Season 1, The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. The Art of Crime takes painstaking research and crafts it into compelling stories that teach you about social and cultural history. Subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, that's the blurb that they gave me. And I have to say, I I agree with it completely. I listened to this podcast when I um, introduced it before I started listening to it. And it's it's brilliant. And it's 
I think if you like dark histories, you would really like this podcast because I, I feel like that we're, we're kind of like, we're definitely in the same ballpark, really, um, you know, along the same sorts of vibes. The people that make the art of crime, they clearly really care about their research. They're not just regurgitating old stories. They're coming up with original stories about cultural history. It's a great podcast and I really like the way they're splitting it into seasons and sort of focusing on a theme for each season. Um, yeah, just check it out. Anywhere you get your podcasts, it's called The Art of Crime. I think if, you, if you're this far into an episode of Dark Histories and you're enjoying it, then I'm sure you'll enjoy The Art of Crime. Cheers. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So yeah, that was that was quite a story. It's well, it's, a, it's basically a lot of stories, all sort of amalgamated into one on this side, on this side of the Atlantic, at least the British side. We, if you look at the legend that surrounded the British nineteenth century, I think you can actually see that it's a mutation that that started in San Francisco, and I think from that San Francisco story, you can also follow that then down to Central America. And I, and I think that's the way essentially it traveled. I think that's, I think it was just myths and legend that were in, that were in Central America. They traveled up to the West coast of America and then they traveled across America to Britain and Europe in the nine, in the later 19th century. And I think that's pretty much explains my thoughts on it. I, I don't think there is a Cocos Island treasure. I think it is all just myth and legend. I think what is interesting about the Cocos Island treasure, and I think it's all good conspiracies and myths like this, I think have just enough truth behind them to be believable or to sort of dangle a carrot, you know, to 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 drag people in. And and of course, like Cocos Island, it definitely has it. You have the War of Independence and the sacking of Lima and the the the, the the Viceroy sending out ships full of gold. It's all there. But unfortunately, none of it actually ties into actual myth and legend. Of course, you could say that maybe the names were just made up because the names were never known. Like Thompson, for example, and, and his ship, the Mary Deer. And that would, of course, then explain why there's no records of either. You could also say that maybe the Spanish were kind of covering it up. You know, they didn't want to be known to be dealing with privateers. But I think it's much more likely that actually it just comes from uh, myths and legends and it's just travelled up through the country and then travelled across the country to Europe. And I, and I think absolutely I agree with uh, Chambers who said that, you know, it's probably just a bunch of con men looking, like unscrupulous men looking to secure investment uh, on an expedition that there was then basically a jolly to the Pacific and then they came back empty-handed and went, sorry about that, but thanks for your $550,000. Uh, I think that's almost more or less what happened. But, you know, like I say, there's just enough there to maybe believe it, right? What I will say is if you think that, if you find stories of, you know, lost treasure exciting and interesting, and if you think that this Cocos Island sort of lost treasure of Lima mystery is fun, you should definitely read um, the account by um, Montmorency, uh, Hervey Montmorency. Uh, he published it in 1904 and it's called On the Track of a Treasure. And uh, it's absolutely hilarious. Uh, it's written, importantly to know, it's, it's Montmorency. You know, it is a turn of the century colonial toff. So it, it's, it has some, well, it has a lot in there, which is 
quote unquote of its time, you know, and, and it's certainly a, um, a, a document that's written by a, someone with a colonial mindset. That said, it's also hilarious. It's brilliant and it's a wonderful travel document uh, in itself uh, that documents, you know, travelling through Central America in, in the early 1900s. Um, but, but the writer, Montmorency, he does... He have a he does have a um, a particular turn of a particularly good turn of phrase and he's very funny. There's a particular anecdote in it where he's complaining about how wonderful it is that Americans can travel so lightly and how it's so annoying that British people always have to carry too much. Uh, and, and he's going on about this for for a good paragraph and you know really sort of digging into the British about it. Which, you know he's he's British himself and he's basically sort of. Um, you know, digging into the British crews and how terrible they are and how we always carry too much. And then literally this paragraph rolls straight into the next one where he's talking about having his feet up on a boat, being pampered with a steam towel around his neck, drinking some fine vintage whiskey that he'd carried with him in his suitcase. And and, and it's, he doesn't, you know, the, the, the irony is completely, clearly completely lost on him. It, it's very funny. Um, I, I, I thought it was very funny anyway. Um, there's also, if you are interested in the Cocos Islands and you, in, you know, you found this in, this episode interesting. There's a documentary on YouTube, which is a little bit rubbish and a bit low budget, and it's much more about the wildlife around Cocos Island. But it it, it has tons of footage of the island, so you can actually see it for yourself in like modern color and see what it looks like. Which you know, it's it's a nice. You know, it's it's a nice way to get a good overview of what the island actually looks like if you are interested. Um, that's called Cocos Island, the mysterious island in the Pacific, and it's yeah, it's it's on YouTube if you want to look at that. It's um, yeah, it's 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 really uh, say it's it's a bit of a tacky documentary, but it's I mean, if you like nature documentaries, it's good anyway. I quite enjoyed it just for that. But uh, yeah, it's it's um, so I mostly it's watched it just to get a good idea of what the island actually looked and sort of felt like. But uh, yeah. Anyway, that's that. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if you believe that there's such a thing as the lost treasure of Lima or, you know, Cocos Island does actually house a treasure or not. Uh, you can do so. My email address is contact at darkhistories.com. You can also get in touch with me via social media. All the links for that are in the show notes, as are the links to the website, uh, darkhistories.com. And that has all links as well so you basically if you need to find anything check out the show notes check out darkhistories.com you'll also be able to find any discount codes from current sponsors um like HelloFresh and all that kind of stuff uh both in the show notes and on the website as well so yes thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoyed it until next time sleep tight <laughs>